0: hey everyone welcome or welcome back to truth unites truth unites is a place for apologetics and theology done in an ironic way and today i'm going to be talking with lucas ruger who runs a super cool youtube channel called deflate if you've never seen it you got to check it out he does the most creative videos it's addictive this is the only thing i will warn you about you start watching them and you get hooked on them <laughs> um so a link to his video uh to his channel is in the video description go check it out go subscribe go watch his stuff we're going to have kind of a fun, casual conversation about arguments for the existence of God, pros and cons to each argument, um, what makes them practically effective, any pitfalls to avoid when we're using arguments, and just anything like this that might be helpful for people who are interested in in arguing for the existence of God. So this would be a great time. Um, Lucas, w- when did Deflate start, and and what was the motive for you for starting it?
1: Yeah, so Gavin, I started around two and a half years ago. And the history behind the channel is that we used to have discussion events, we called them discussion nights at our house in Beirut in our living room. And these were done in collaboration with an an atheist club. So I basically, we started a a Bible study for skeptics and seekers in a Starbucks in Beirut, uh, which is where I currently live or where i have lived with my family for the last 10 years and uh, well a bunch of people from our crowd they started an atheist club uh like an atheist gathering and then at some point we said well let's bring our two groups together and do joint you know events where we discuss the things that divide or unite us and uh, like out of that grew the idea to kind of turn things we took like We would talk about or the discussions i would facilitate into a youtube channel and so that happened yeah around two and a half years ago actually awesome well yeah it's
0: a great channel and i'm curious i got into youtube about two years or maybe similar time maybe a little bit after you and i kind of went into it worried about uh, what are the negative effects of social media do i really want to be devoting so much time to social media but what's honestly surprised Mm -hmm. me is it's Mm -hmm. also so much fun and I've made a lot of friends yeah. by being on YouTube. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. I'm curious about your experience as I mean, would you say what What are some of the positives that you've enjoyed about yeah. being on YouTube?
1: Yeah, great question. I was very, very positively surprised uh, by how you can really well create a sense of community and bring people together. I mean, what What I cherish most or what are kind of the nuggets. In, in running the YouTube channel is to, you know, take up conversations again and again with the same people. You know, I have around, I don't know, 19,000 followers. And I mean, out of those 19,000, there is probably a cool group. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I could probably come up with like 20 or maybe 30 names of people that regularly come back and interact in the comment section or write emails. And this is, I think, this is very rewarding. And then, what is what is nice is to see uh, people, well, not not even necessarily change their minds. I mean, i I mean, that's obviously obviously beauty, beautiful to see. But what I think what is even more beautiful is people admitting uh, that they, you know, that that they were maybe wrong or that they had a wrong attitude and this kind. Of, and I, I did, I had to do this myself. I, I mean, I had to apologize uh, in the comment section for the ways in which I, you know, didn't, uh, compose myself properly in responding to comments. And I think this is, this is really what binds people together, even on an online platform. And that's beautiful. And what, what's also beautiful is to see, I mean, I, I have a couple of followers, uh, who come from where I actually live. So from in Beirut, I have a big atheist influencer from, from Lebanon who follows me and we've met in person. And we're actually going to meet again just about like next week probably, and that's that's beautiful. That's I love that. And it's it's things like you know converse with people like yourself, uh, where you again have the real experience of connecting with with the people who you know are as real as people can be. So that's that that's the cool thing about YouTube, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Whenever we can have these conversations with civility and respect is a beautiful thing. And we all fall yes. short. I mean, I, I, I have too. I mean, I, I regularly, I have to check myself. I don't know what yes. it is. It's like you get into this mind where you say, I want to, I want to prove my side. And then you have to be careful at times that you're not yes. getting pulled into ways of arguing that aren't productive. And it's so easy to do. And we all make mistakes like that. But um, yeah, but I love the work you do. And I, I want to ask, about your favorite video. And by the way, for people watching this too, to know if there's ever a gap between when we're talking, it's not that the other person is just likes to stare for three seconds at the screen. <laughs> it's that <laughs> the Lebanon to the U S connection is such, there's just a little time gap sometimes. So that's no problem at all. But what, what's your, is there a favorite video you've, you've done or something you'd first recommend if they're just checking out your channel?
1: I guess I'm like, A series of videos I'm passionate about is my is my responses to Cosmic Skeptic Alex O'Connor. If for anyone who is interested in his work, I think they will probably enjoy uh, the various responses I've done to his uh, videos. And probably a good one to start with is the response I did to his what is called what he called his biggest case against Christianity based on animal suffering. And I responded to that one which was around one and a half years ago and it picked up pretty well. And it's, yeah, I I enjoy that video. Um, And I think, yeah, it's a good place to start. Yeah, I've done quite a couple of response videos to atheist YouTubers and um, yeah, but I've also done just topic videos and yeah.
0: Yeah, and you've got short ones, you've got long ones. Some of the stuff you've done on divine hiddenness is that's an interesting area yeah. for me. So I don't know, maybe that'll come up or not, we'll see. But let's yeah. dive into arguments for the existence of God here a little bit. And uh, here's a fun way to start, what's your favorite? Do you have a, a personal favorite argument?
1: Yeah, it's probably, it, it's a good question. When And when you sent me that, I was thinking, well, what? how would I answer that question? I think, and this may be a boring way to answer it, but it, it depends on the context. You know, it depends on, on the level of knowledge uh, and familiarity with philosophical arguments that a person already has but i think in general to kick off a conversation uh, i'm like i'm pretty happy and i feel pretty comfortable with the uh, with cosmological arguments uh, arguments from or argument the argument from contingency the kalam cosmological argument i think these are great to you know to poke a person's mind and, you know, they, they bring you, you know, they bring you to theism or they, you know, I mean, I I guess the column cosmological argument even brings you to a personal creator if you dig deeper, but in general, I think these are very, I think what I would call innocent arguments, very easy to grasp, uh, very, I think non-threatening in the, in the sense that they don't bring, you know, baggage if you want of, of, of Christian, tradition or, or or history that a person would have to handle with and often has or would have to handle and often would often have maybe negative ideas about. I mean, they are purely philosophical arguments that I think can stir quite some, some interest. I, I've, I've made very good experiences with, again, the cosmological argument or the argument from contingency. Yeah, yeah. In
0: just a second, I want to uh, ask more about those experiences and we can work through the Kalam and well, just the cosmological argument generally. I want to say for me, and this is why I distinguish my favorite argument versus the one I think is most effective.
1: <laughs> because uh-huh. my favorite yeah. argument
0: is the ontological argument for God's existence. Yeah. Because it makes my mind expand. It, 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 it opens up my mind to thinking about the nature of God. However, yeah. I can't think of a single time that I've ever used the ontological argument yeah. to try to convince someone of the existence of yeah. God. And that is interesting to think about is that sometimes the the value of arguments for the existence of God might be more than just a matter of convincing someone. It might also be a matter of nourishing, strengthening, or even just intriguing someone mm-hmm. who's maybe already open mm-hmm. or already convinced mm-hmm. but what i would say for the one that i think is most effective is i think is for me and my experiences is the moral argument because it can mm-hmm. tap into the spirit of the times which is outrage yeah. about injustice if there's yeah. anything that is characteristic of the world these days it seems as though people are yeah. outraged and the moral argument can tap into that yeah. and then build from it and we, we'll we come back to that one as well but is there an argument that you find most effective or would you say the color still the cosmological for that
1: yeah again i would say that the moral argument is as you yourself said it, it is an effective argument but at the same time in my experience it takes quite some time for a person to realize you know the the, the weight or the significance of the argument and what i mean by that is um, like, first of all, I think many people have a hard time realizing what moral subjectivism or relativism would imply, which is, you know, most, most people you would be discussing this argument with, I mean, that is people from uh, non-Christian background would assume the uh, position of moral relativism, but they don't realize that <clears throat> this position entails that you can't really call any moral act Uh, evil or wrong. You know, if you bring up, in my experience, it's hard for people to understand that if they were true moral relativists, they had no ground to stand on to call, again, genocide or the Holocaust uh, wrong. And yet that's what they do. And so I think, in my experience, it takes quite some time to make a person understand that Moral relativism isn't really livable or that no one, even they themselves live out as if moral, live as if moral relativism is true. And so that's in this sense. But but once this clicks, once a person understands that and once they then is in a second step understand that, uh, you know, moral objectivism, the position that makes most sense in the light of how we live and talk and think and react to, again, all sorts of injustices out out there in the world. Once a person realizes that and realizes that this position requires the existence of a moral lawgiver who is above and beyond humanity, I think the argument then hits home with quite some force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, let me ask one last preliminary question, and then we can drill into these specific yeah. arguments even more. Some people say you don't need an argument to believe in God you can rely on personal experience experience. Therefore, um, arguments for the existence of God don't have that much value. And I feel Mm -hmm. about this that I want to say, it's true that you don't have to have arguments to believe in Mm -hmm. God, but that doesn't, it doesn't follow from that, that they don't have value. They can really have value both for nourishing a believer Mm -hmm. and also for providing an appeal to a non-believer. I'm curious in your own work and in your ministry, I mean, could you share anything about how you've seen arguments for the existence of God really have a positive impact upon people?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, on a very, very basic level in my work and experience, and I mean, we, again, we do regular discussion events. We just had like 10 days ago, we had a discussion night in our, we, like we just opened a ministry cafe in Beirut two months ago. And for one of like again, we do biweekly discussion events, which are like very apologetic in, in in nature. And we had some 80 people show up the other day in in for again, just discussing whether God exists. In my experience, a, a very, and this may be uh, like very modest, but it is still like a very basic and, and useful value of arguments and apologetics. It's to to give intellectual or intelligent people, like a, a basic experience that Christian Christians actually think about what they believe. Uh, you know, again, this may be very, again, super modest, but I do think that at least in my experience, for many people I meet, what they need as, as, as a very first step is just the experience that and I, there are Christians out there who are actually, you know, they're sh- sharp, in how they think about reality and their faith and God and science and philosophy. So that for me is often, that's kind of the first uh, uh, kind of groundbreaking work an argument can do. And and from there, you, you, you then take it on. Now, I, I do, I mean, in my experience, I do think that every person, I mean, the way God created us is that we're both emotional and, you know, intellectual beings, so I do think that a person will have will want to have some sort of, you know, personal or emotional experience uh, of the divine or of 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 God, in order to kind of come to to personal faith in him. And but at the same time, again, I think people want answers to tricky questions. And, and yeah, I mean, these come in different proportions, you know, depending on how a person is wired. I've I mean, I've seen people they would you know, happily <clears throat> come closer, move closer to Christ without having heard all the arguments there are, uh, but they, you know, they're they're much more interested in having, you know, a relational way of experiencing uh, divine love or, or Christian love. Other people know they, you know, their heads are, you know, working all the time. They They think their way through life. And so in order for them to come to uh, knowledge of Christ, they, they would want to make it work up here. So, And then, obviously, I, I think about this in terms of the calling of the church. I mean, the, you know, the body of Christ has its members, and I, I do think as as the church, uh, we are called to give our best in, you know, thinking through the faith and communicating the faith uh, properly, and because there are people out there who will, who will need to hear uh, good arguments in order to move closer towards Christ. Yes, well, let's let's
0: drill into the cosmological argument a bit and and share our feeling you've you've already uh, broached this one a bit. Um my I like to compare the cosmological argument to a sledgehammer <laughs> in that. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is I think it has enormous force, but it's not mm-hmm. quite as precise, perhaps, as some other arguments. And I could be wrong about that. I keep revisiting this and thinking about this. Um, for people watching, this is the argument for God as the first cause. And sometimes it, mm-hmm. and, and there are different variations of this argument. I'll, I'll preface my comments by saying I, I'll never forget when I read Paul Davies, who is a uh, agnostic physicist. And he's basically saying, when you think about the Big Bang, and he, this is in interaction with the Kalam cosmological argument mm-hmm. particularly, he's saying people often misconstrue the big bang as though it were the explosion of matter within space and time Mm -hmm. so you've got this this empty space of blackness and then poof here comes light and matter and so forth Mm -hmm. no 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 no. the big bang is the explosion of space-time itself now Mm -hmm. i i know that we will also need to acknowledge alternative cosmologies that construe the big bang differently those exist They need to be considered that's real, that's out there. But uh, in in sort of the standard model, uh, this is how we are to think. And it really, every time I think about it, it washes over me afresh to think of space-time itself coming into existence. And to me, there's this powerful intuition that there needs to be some explanation for that. And I think Mm -hmm. most people can relate to that. At the same time, I can understand someone. If someone were to say, well, okay, Sure, there's something up there. There's something out there beyond space time, something immaterial that caused the material. But uh-huh. it's harder to say precisely what that cause is. I can understand uh-huh. that. And I that's where I think we probably need to provide additional arguments at that point. But I know others who try to get the whole, everything out of the Kalam argument. So that that's sort of how I think about this. I'm curious. Uh, your thoughts on the cosmological argument? How far do you think it can get us, and how do you like to use this argument? And how have you seen it used? Well,
1: yeah. Again, I, I've seen it in my experience. I, I've seen it work well, just as a kind of as a as a good starter to get the conversation going, or to actually, again, push push quite hard. Um, you know, make 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 a good push for the existence of some immaterial. Uh, being that is outside space, time, and matter. So in this sense, I think it does a good, good job at, uh, you know, at, at challenging naturalism itself. You know, you you need to, have, as Paul Davies says, well, you need you need a first cause behind, uh, you know, the effect of the universe coming into existence. And um, again, it it, it just it, it it challenges naturalism at its core. And obviously it leaves uh, the question about the cause unanswered. However, I mean, the cause by, its, by, by, by itself, and I guess your reviewers are probably familiar with, again, the, the Coulomb cosmological argument and in in, in that it implies an immaterial and spaceless and timeless cause. Because if the cause were in any way Uh, kind of related to time, space, or matter, it would become part of the space-time matter reality that (laughs) needs explaining or that needs a cause. So I think that that's pretty easy to to grasp. I think for most people, in my experience, they have no problem realizing, oh yeah, I mean, if we want to kind of look for a cause for space-time matter, well, we, we need to have a cause that doesn't have these properties. But actually, I mean, and William Lane Craig and Cosmic Skeptic, they had the conversation about this. Um, and I, I, I will make a commentary video on their conversation. It's If you dig deeper, the Kalam the Cosmological Argument will, will actually even bring you to a personal cause. It will not just if if you dig deeper. And I mean, I guess we don't have time to discuss this here now. But if you dig deeper into the nature of the cause that caused space, time and matter to come into being, you will actually find that you have no other way than to like, suggest a cause that is personal. And I mean, and, and to make this very, very quick, there are there are two ways to, to argue for a personal cause behind the, or the cause that the Kalam suggests. And, and one of them is, again, it's quite simple. I mean, if you think about all causal explanations you could possibly give for anything out there, for, for, for any, again, cause-effect uh, phenomenon, you always have two possibilities available. One of them is natural law or personal agency. Any causal, re- any causal explanation we give about anything is either going to be an explanation in terms of natural law or personal agency or both sometimes, okay? But if for the explanation of, uh, again, the beginning of space, time, and matter, beginning of the universe, you cannot, it's impossible to invoke natural law because the laws of nature, they didn't yet, so to speak, exist before nature itself came to exist. So you are forced to, by abductive reasoning, basically to suggest that the cause behind the universe must be personal. So, I mean, that's in a nutshell, there's much more that could be said about this. Again, William Lane Craig has talked about this, he talked about this to cosmic skeptic who's actually... Conceded and admitted that this this makes sense that you can move from the kalam to a personal cause behind the universe, which is which is impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Well, people who would like to learn more about this argument would do well. I'm uh, in addition to what the videos you've done on this, to look at William Lane Craig's work because he's yes. done a pioneering job just resurrecting this argument, especially the kalam yes. version, which has origins in, among uh, medieval Muslim philosophers, interestingly, yes. and uh, it really is a powerful appeal. And as you say, it's one that yeah. sometimes we think, oh, these arguments are only for people who have a PhD in cosmology or something like that, but it really is something that can be understood and grasped in its basic idea by yeah. the average person, I think. So um, mm-hmm. let, let me ask you about the teleological argument or the argument from design. This is one that Mm -hmm. I myself did not, uh, put a lot of work into historically. It just wasn't my area of interest. And so as I was looking back at it to kind of get up to speed on it, as I was doing some research for my book on this, I, Mm -hmm. one of the things that really struck me is that the best rival explanation for the exquisite fine tuning of the physical constants of our universe other than intelligent design is the multiverse hypothesis. Uh-huh. There are many, uh-huh. many, many universes and we just happen to live in the one that is uh, uh, characterized as it is such that it's life permitting. And I, that uh-huh. was amazing for me to realize and, and to realize uh-huh. it just kind of puts things on a little more of an even playing field because the, yeah. that is the major alternative. <laughs> What that tells you is nobody has a non-mysterious worldview. Nobody has a worldview that is entirely explicable just by what we can observe and study scientifically. Mm. And that that was really helpful for me to see that. What would you like to comment upon about teleological arguments?
1: Yeah let me just jump right into again this version of the theological argument about the fine like basically fine tuning of the universe i think with what you expressed to put it in the, i think what you expressed can be put in different words which is that i think it forces a person or it forces the naturalist or the skeptic to realize again you called it you you call it like everyone has a like a, a mysterious a mysterious aspect in the world you what, what, what this argument does so well, again, it brings, it brings us on the level ground with the skeptic by like him having to concede that he has to refer to an entity or he is proposing something, i.e. the multiverse, which is inaccessible to uh, the empirical sciences. Okay. I mean, again, the multiverse by definition cannot be accessed by science it's outside the grasp of science which can only go as far as our observable universe and so i think what this argument does so i mean it, it, i think it does much more than that but again the groundbreaking or the basic work the argument does it basically tells the skeptic well you know what yes i know me as a christian i'm proposing this entity god who is you know immaterial and he's a He's uh, again, he's he's baseless, and he doesn't like. There is no matter to it, and whatnot. So he's not a scientific, uh, scientifically accessible thing. But you're doing the same thing. You're telling me that we live in this universe because there is this scientifically or empirically inaccessible thing out there, the multiverse of which we're part of. So basically, well, aren't we? Are we not kind of standing on like on, on the same on the same ground here? And I think that's that's a powerful way, again, just to push back against the supposed rationality of the naturalist position or, this, or the perceived irrationality of the theistic position. And then I think from there you can go even further and, you know, apply Occam's razor and say, well, how much sense does it make for you to t- tell me that there are millions and millions or trillions and trillions of universes out there of which we will never be able to kind of grasp anything as opposed to saying, well, there is one intelligent, immaterial, divine mind who created the one universe we're uh, observing. So I, I, I think that's it's, it's a very, it's a very powerful argument. And I think part of what uh, it shows that it is so powerful is that people like, I mean, Richard Dawkins of all people, he said that if There was one argument that was to convince him of 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 theism it would be this it would be the argument from fine tuning yeah Yeah, it's interesting i remember reading through
0: richard dawkins the god delusion and being just amazed that he uses occam's razor in the other way he's saying oh it's much (laughs) simpler to have a zillion universes than it is to have god and i remember thinking okay whatever you're doing right now in that judgment it is not science uh, because yeah. that's how he's casting his whole outlook Is well. I'm having the more scientific outlook. I'm like, that's an intuition and that's a judgment. That's of a philosophical nature concerning the nature of simplicity. And whether you're yeah. right or wrong, that is not a scientific observation. And again, like you say, it kind of evens the playing field a little bit. But how do you yeah. respond when people say, because the two most common responses to these first two arguments, I like to clump them together somewhat You know, Immanuel Kant spoke of the starry host above and the moral law within. Mm -hmm. In my own thinking, Mm -hmm. I like to think of like, sometimes I'm talking about the universe. Sometimes I'm talking about the human heart. These two are both about the universe, the cosmological that it is, the teleological how it is. And the most common response I hear to both is, oh, well, if everything needs a cause, what caused God? Oh and oh well, yeah. the universe needs a designer. Who designed the designer? And these appeals, right. I am thoroughly unimpressed by these responses. Um, yeah. and, you know, we could maybe, but maybe it'd be helpful to talk about them because we hear them all the time. How do you interact yeah. with concerns like that?
1: Yeah, it's great. I expected that it would pick this up again because it comes up just regularly in conversations. Um, I think part of what what you do when you present you know, in an argument, uh, you know, a philosophical argument or when you do apologetics uh, in interaction with skeptics is you are actually, and I don't mean for this to come across as uh, pretentious or anything, but you're actually uh, educating people. I think, you know, on what world you, they actually have. And Francis Schaeffer was big on that. He said, well, part of what you do when you, you know, when you do evangelism and you do apologetics is you actually need to tell people what the implications of their own world view, of their own worldviews uh, are. And so here, here's one thing. Yes, I, you know, when you talk about the Kalam or when you talk about uh, the fine-tuning argument, yes, it's like in nine out of 10 cases, the person will ask the question, well, okay, who designed the designer or who created God? Now, here, and actually, I mean, uh, at, at, of, I mean, to be honest, it's a fair question. There's nothing wrong about these questions, but what it... What it shows or the opportunity it gives is for you to say, Well, I mean, God is not created. He is the piece of my narrative, he's the starting point of my worldview, which I cannot explain. You know, he is he is the ultimate, he is the 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 entity that explains but that remains unexplained. And then you move on to say, Well, to be honest, if you if you think about it you have that piece in your narrative too. Every worldview, if you think about it in terms of a story, I mean, a worldview is a story that has a beginning and it moves towards some end. And every story, every worldview story has a beginning that remains unexplained. And for the Christian, it is the triune God. And for the materialist or for the naturalist, it is, you know, the universe. It is space-time reality, again, just going back infinitely. And I think... We shouldn't be too concerned or, or frustrated or intimidated by the question – anyway, not intimidated, but not, not frustrated, anyways, about the question who created God. But take it as an opportunity to tell to tell the skeptic, well, yes, he is the ultimate begin, starting point of my worldview. What is your ultimate starting point that you won't give me an explanation about? Because whether you like it or not, you have such a starting point that eludes an explanation in your own worldview. Yeah, it's a great point. I'll give my th- a thought
0: on this, and then I'll ask you another question about the moral argument. We can pivot to that sure, one. But I What I found helpful with these uh, objections of who caused, uh, what caused God and who designed the designer is to use analogies. And this relates mm-hmm. to what you were sharing as well. And this is what I've seen William Lane Craig do so well. He talks about in his book, Reasonable Faith, how he learned to do mm-hmm. this with analogies. The idea is that God is the, the definition of the word God in the Abrahamic traditions is an uncaused entity, the ontologically yeah. distinct uncaused first cause. It's not like the first domino. That's just like all the other dominoes. It's an ontologically mm-hmm. distinct uncaused first cause. Now somebody can perfectly with perfect rationality, deny the existence of that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. But if you say, well, what caused the uncaused, It's like asking what number is bigger than eternity or what, who is older than, or excuse me, what, who is older than eternity or what number is bigger than infinity. It simply misunderstands the proposal. The proposal can be rejected, but if the proposal is interrogated with the what caused God question, it shows it's not yet been envisaged. The person has not yet grasped what we're trying to put on. As you put it, what we're trying to put on the table is you have to have. uh, Yes. Yes uncaused beginning point. Yeah. And with the designer as well, uh, you know, Craig uses the analogy of if you landed on the moon and you discovered, uh, the ruins of, an, uh, or another planet, uh, the ruins of a civilization where there's buildings and there's pipes and there's mm-hmm. all this stuff, you know, you wouldn't actually need to know who built them to infer. Yes. Design. You can infer design without yet knowing all the details about the designer. And, and so forth. So that's, anyway, those are some, and those analogies can sometimes help I think a little bit, but um, now now on the moral argument, uh, you, you made a great point a moment ago when we were talking about this, maybe we can circle back to this and, and mm-hmm. talk about how do we help people feel existentially the problem of uh, when we are, uh, when we're stuck without any transcendent supernatural basis, for mm-hmm. morality as an objective, fixed reality, mm-hmm. then we're stuck in um, the evolutionary paradigm that all our moral instincts are purely the product of evolution, and mm-hmm. we don't. And it's really hard to see how objectivity comes into the picture mm-hmm. in that paradigm. I've always been struck that C.S. Lewis starts off the whole book *Mere Christianity*. He doesn't make a cumulative argument. He makes just a moral argument and, uh, you know, it's kind, yeah. of, like, he kind of puts <laughs> all his eggs in that one basket. But let's let's come back to this and maybe you want to comment more on this argument. Uh, how can we help people feel the weight of it? I think you mentioned earlier, sometimes it takes a little bit of work to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, again, in my experience, again, especially with the moral argument, you just have to talk it over and over and over again. And I again, I mean specifically the point that a person, again, a lot of, most people I realize, most people I know, or most skeptics I know, again, they, be, they will be very quick to profess moral relativism. You know, there is no absolute morality. There is no objective morality. You know, there are all these different cultures, all these different times. I do what I like, you do what you like. You know, we may disagree. Well, who is to say there is, you know, there is nothing right and nothing wrong. There is just taste that's what people profess but again it you know then they go out and they do their shopping and if someone cuts in front of them in the line well they will think and they will intuitively react and say man this is like what this is wrong you know not not just well you have bad taste this is wrong you're, you're supposed to stand you know to wait your turn even more so when they open the newspapers and they you know see whatever you know racism or any war and war crimes Again, they will immediately feel this is wrong. It's not supposed to happen. They will not think or feel. I don't like this. You know, these guys have bad taste or or whatnot. And so, for me, it I think that the crux here is to make a people realize to make a person realize that their reaction makes complete sense if the realm of morality exist objectively if moral values and moral obligations are a matter of objectivity once they realize that once they realize the connection between their intuitive moral reactions and the implications of those reactions again which which is that you know they do these reactions only make sense if moral morality is a matter of objectivity once you get there you know the, the step from um, explaining that you need a moral lawgiver or some transcendent, uh, you know, cause behind those moral, uh, moral laws is, I think is a small, it's actually the smaller one. The bigger step, the the harder work is to make a person realize that they, that we all live and they themselves live uh, as moral objectivists rather than moral relativists, even if they profess otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I like the
0: way you're saying that. It is that, that struggle of helping, Helping the dots get connected so we're not living in inconsistency because yeah. as you say, once you make that turn, one of the ways I found helpful with that is what people call and let me recommend the book. I, I have a couple book recommendations as we go for folks. Yeah. here. This is called Good God, the theistic foundations of morality by David Baggett and Jerry Walls. It's oh, an academic oh. uh, treatment of the moral argument. It really is thorough. It's really excellent. I think people if they're interested in drilling down into this argument might find it useful. And uh, one of the things I think they talk about it in there, and I've thought about this is Darwinian counterfactuals. So this is a way to say, mm-hmm. if the evolutionary process had gone differently, our moral instincts might be different and then give examples. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. Uh, this will help like, you know, in the insect realm, There's Mm -hmm. plenty of things that are so disgusting that happen Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I won't say Mm -hmm. them because someone watching this video Mm -hmm. out there might be about to eat lunch or something like this, but they (laughs) species has evolved in a certain way where eating one's family members or sexual cannibalism or all kinds of things we could mention. They've evolved such that that is their instinct. That is their norm. That is what happens in that species of insect. And then some in some cases in the higher level animals so we can say what if the evolutionary process had gone differently what if there's if there's nothing outside of of our biology that is grounding our moral instincts the evolutionary process could have gone differently we might have evolved mm. such that malice mm. was seen as good and i think and and then giving specific examples from the animal kingdom of things that are you know yeah. i think that's one way to help people not just get it up here, intellectually, but at a visceral level. feel all that's yeah. at stake with this yeah, argument. Yeah. So yeah. that that's something yeah, I yeah. found useful. But um, what about uh, what about uh, uh, arguments from beauty? Uh, I'm curious. i've heard I've heard skeptics say, "Well, uh, I'm a skeptic. I don't think there's any good reason to believe in God, but sometimes when I'm listening to Beethoven, I have mm-hmm. my doubts about my skepticism. And it's interesting, uh, another book to recommend is this fascinating book, Two Dozen or So Arguments from God for God. Yeah. This was inspired by some of the work of Alvin Plantinga. Well, several of these arguments yeah. are aesthetic arguments or arguments from beauty. There's even argu- there's arguments in the table of contents here. There's an argument from colors and flavors, arguments from play and enjoyment. And that might, pe- people might just... <laughs> immediately dismiss that but it is interesting this is high level philosophy that people are making these arguments from <laughs> yeah.
1: what are your thoughts about
0: aesthetic arguments or arguments from beauty
1: i've used again the experience of pu- of beauty that people have made or again that like the glimpse of the beautiful or of the transcendent that that art or you know beautiful sceneries can offer a person as a, as a platform to talk about um well, to, to to approach the the truth or to, to to approach the question of God more from a from a personal experiential uh, vantage point, rather you know what I mean, rather than to kind of try and make an argument out of it. I've yeah, I've, I've tried it sometimes, but I've been too too frustrated with how this went. I feel like well, you know I'm I'm you know I'm slaughtering or I'm misusing you know the beautiful for what it's as if not supposed to be used. You know, let's just. Let let us just rather listen to a great piece of Beethoven and and see what happens, see what, how we react beyond just mere uh, you know brain cells doing their work up here or us thinking through it. But let's let's just see what happens, you know? Right. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe the aesthetic
0: arguments. I've never thought of it quite like this before, but you kind of made me think of it like this. Maybe the aesthetic arguments are more person specific. And you, you, it's yeah. less the kind of thing where you it's less like the sledgehammer of the Kalam argument where you're starting off with something and then leveraging it out to people. And it's more in the context of relationship yeah. with someone, a dialogue. You're yeah. referencing what they're pre yeah. articulating and saying, well, what's the best <coughs> for that? And that's that's how I use. I In my book, I give an argument from math and an argument from music. and And it does uh-huh. leverage out of. People's experiences, and then it says, "What's the best yeah. explanation for that experience?" But those arguments, people can see how I try to do it. But I'm what. Here's what I'll say: is I'm amazed at how many smart philosophers out there who will acknowledge the mysteriousness of yeah. the human experience of transcendence, and that it does yeah. call for some kind of explanation. And frankly, the naturalistic explanations are pretty underwhelming, um, they're kind of dismal. Yeah. Uh, they have a way of of cutting down our yeah. uh, basic intuitions of, uh, as human mm-hmm. beings. So uh, yeah, so uh, I guess if we're going from the Kant on the starry host above to the moral law within, we can extend that from not just the moral law within, but also other things within the human heart that we can appeal to. Um, another one is our ability to reason. Do you, what are your thoughts about this? So C.S. Lewis uses this argument in various places. He had a famous debate with Elizabeth Anscombe about this argument in uh, another great book people might be interested in for learning about arguments for for the existence of God is the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology. There's a great version of the argument from reason by Victor. Mm -hmm. I think his name is Repert or Repair, Mm R-E-P-P-E-R-T. He's one of the leading exponents of that argument today. And Josh Rasmussen has done great work on this argument as well. Mm -hmm. So this is not using reason to prove God. This is arguing for God from the nature of reason. Uh, I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you have thoughts about this argument, if you've seen this one used well. Uh,
1: Do you think it's a forceful argument? Do you think it's a good argument? Yeah, I mean, I do think it is a good argument. I wonder sometimes whether it's a bit too uh, technical or abstract for some people's taste and therefore doesn't do quite, isn't quite as efficient or effective maybe. I think, and I mean, this is a very, very simplified version and it's not even, and you might not even want to call it uh, a version of the argument from reason. But what I, what I usually kind of bring it back to is asking a person, um, you know, basically, and I think, I'm not sure if Thomas Nagel was, was the person who said that, the like, a, the, the well-known atheistic philosopher, philosopher from New York University, I think he passed away five years ago or so, um, he said, if I'm not mistaken, it was him who said that, well, the difference between theism and atheism is that um, atheism posits that matter preceded mind, whereas theism... Uh, suggest that mind preceded matter mm. and so then i, I you know I, just breaking it down to, and I, I love that way of breaking down the two worldviews. it's and in this sense what i what i would usually ask a person is well what what makes more sense to th- again because again every worldview has to start with something that is ultimate we're both on 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 even on level ground here you know um so either you, like, take your pick, either it's mind first or it's matter first, because, again, philosophers, you know, we, like, down the centuries have wrestled with the mind, you know, the mind-body problem or how mind or consciousness relates to matter. And <clears throat> so you, you're either going to start with this or you're going to start with that. So the way I usually kind of, uh, again, like, convey in a very, very simplified version of the the argument for reason is to ask well what makes more sense if to suggest that mind gave rise to matter ultimately or matter gave gave rise to mind um, you know if it's uh, matter giving rise to mind again what reasons would we have to trust our reasoning processes whereas if mind is ultimate well you know what what we're doing in with the life of the mind can at least in principle be trusted.
0: Well, one thing that uh, people should know is that sometimes uh, C.S. Lewis has been uh, unfairly represented by some of his really negative biographers in acting as though he just completely abandoned this argument and was super embarrassed after his debate with Elizabeth mm-hmm. Anscombe. Because he, But the mm-hmm. basic idea that if there's nothing supernatural We can't ultimately trust that our reasoning faculties are geared toward truth, Uh, but they're rather geared toward survival Yeah, because the the evolutionary process doesn't care about truth. It cares about survival. That basic idea he did not abandon. He revised the argument to Anscombe's satisfaction. But he did not abandon it, and it wasn't some humiliating big thing like it's been blown out of proportion for. Well, And I love the way you put it with the uh, which comes first, mind or matter, that simple way to break things down. Uh, That also touches on the argument for God from consciousness. Now, I want to see your thoughts on this. This one is above my pay grade. I haven't really done much in it, I will say that it's interesting that a lot of, I'm holding a book here by Thomas Nagel called Mind and Cosmos. Now he's yeah. an atheist. Oh, it's a, okay.
1: yeah, it's a perfect, it's an awesome book, oh, it's beautiful.
0: Yeah, it's a, it, it, he's an atheist, but he's a great example of a philosopher who's fair-minded and he's acknowledging the mysteriousness of consciousness. And he's really opposing mm. those who pour scorn and contempt upon intelligent design. Yeah. And he's saying, look, as an atheist, it's yeah. not warranted. Consciousness is a fundamentally mysterious reality. Yeah. I, th- I think it gives yeah. a little help when we see those who they're not apologists for either side. They're not apologists yeah. for theism or against theism. They're just philosophers working in the material. And for th- that regular acknowledgement, you do see of the mysteriousness of something mm-hmm. like consciousness. And we could mention other examples, too. That that That's helpful t- to
1: be aware of that. Yeah. I mean, his book is, it's a beautiful book because he, it's just like page after page, he's wrestling. I mean, you can sense him wrestling with with, with the dilemma. He's, well, he acknowledges again as a philosopher, the phenomenon of consciousness is a mystery. You know, it's just, you know, how do we explain it? And he knows there are basically two um competitors here one is the naturalist story which suggests that it's just all reducible to matter and he says this is this is nonsense you know it just doesn't make any sense the evolutionary story to explain consciousness just doesn't work and he says well okay on the other hand we have the the theists who claim that there is well consciousness exists because there is you know the ultimate divine mind and he says man and he just doesn't want it to be true, so he's claiming that we can somehow find a third way, and then he tries to figure it out. And it just doesn't—I mean, it doesn't work either. But it's 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 powerful because it's him as an atheist himself saying, "Man, guys, you just need to stop, you know, pounding can the materialism as a story, as or as a supposed explanation for consciousness, because it just ain't gonna work never. It's it's powerful the way he kind of yeah makes that case against that Mm -hmm. yeah let's let's talk about one final final wing of the interview here
0: historical apologetics so we've talked about you know the starry host above the universe talked about the human heart another arena is history and there's so many things we could get into here we could talk about fulfilled prophecy you know things like this yeah but but the big areas where i see are from christ and um the argument for the resurrection and then yeah. the, the old trilemma lord liar lunatic this kind mm-hmm. of argument now uh, people want to get the kind of cutting edge this this book by mike lycona on the resurrection is really really yep. good it's, it's a thick yep. great book yeah. what amazed me is how good a case can be made from history yeah. i mean i guess i went into it thinking yeah. oh it's 2000 years ago how strong can it really be but the argument for for the resurrection to start with this one, I was just blown away by how uh, how forceful an appeal can be made. What would you like to say? What are your th- yeah. thoughts about the argument for, for God from the resurrection of Christ?
1: Yeah, I mean, once, you know, if you, if you have the time, and I mean, if a person is willing to listen, I do think it's, you know, if you're familiar with, uh, again, the argument for the historicity of the resurrection, I do think it is an it is an important argument to plow through with a person. And it is, I think it's a powerful one. And, you know, in my experience, people will resist uh, the conclusion that Christ rose from the dead. Once you present the evidence uh, to them, you know, the empty tomb and Jesus was, um, uh, you know, the disciples and other people claim to have seen, you know, something they interp- interpreted to be, the risen Christ figure. Once you present those facts to uh, a person, and you present them with the different possibilities that have been suggested as a way to as ways to explain those facts, and you tell them and you show them why the resurrection explains all of these facts most neatly and most comprehensively, and with the least, you know, ad hoc kind of effort, then I, and in my experience, most people will say, "Yeah, okay, fair enough," but I still can't believe it because it's still too crazy. And I, I think again, that's once you get there, this it's actually good because you, you 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 then you can tell then push the skeptic and say, "Well, if you're just dismissing the resurrection because you you dismiss the supernatural, well then you're again you're arg- basically arguing yourself." um you are arguing for naturalism in a, in, a, in a circle and uh, and uh, and you can at least you can also say well you know fair enough if you don't want to go with this option i mean that's your choice but i do think and i think you have to agree that i'm in a rational position to say that well this event is the neatest and the uh, the most uh, efficient uh, explanation for you know the the facts that we have on the ground and that historians agree on. So yeah, I, I think in my experience it is it is a good argument and it's an important one to make because it builds on the very you know focal point of our faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it also just gets us upon Christianity specifically as yeah. opposed to just being a theist of some other kind. And I want to say to encourage people. Sometimes people assume that historical apologetics will be easy compared to philosophical Mm. apologetics, but actually Mm. historical apologetics can be tricky. And uh, so just Mm. just to encourage people to be careful not to assume that just because it's not as abstract, that therefore it's going to be easy to do, we have to be very careful. But on the other hand, I do think... These appeals can be very powerful. I remember, so here's my last question on the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. This Uh is what C.S. Lewis has popularized. He's saying, you know, look, we have to find some way to explain Jesus of Nazareth. um, What's the least difficult option? And, of course, today, so it's called a trilemma, and people switch it to a quadrilemma, or I've heard people say we need to have a a tetralemma, five, you know, but usually people (laughs) recognize we have to add in the fourth category of legend, Lord liar lunatic legend. We can't uh-huh. simply assume that Jesus did claim to be God, and 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 Lewis didn't either. He has other places where he argues for the historicity of the Gospels and so forth. But but uh, if you so we have to factor that in as well. But I remember having a dialogue with with a athe, atheist, and I was encouraged that this argument actually what it does is it puts the uh, the pressure on the other side to say, okay, what's your account of jesus yes. of nazareth yeah um let 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 us both have to give an answer to the question of who is yeah. this most compelling figure the the largest and most diverse religion has sprung up after him he's had such an influence on the world who was he who do you think he was and what it shows is it's hard to just say oh he was just a generic religious figure mm-hmm. and I, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, so I, I think a good case can be made from this argument as well—the Lord Liar
1: Lunatic Legend appeal. What, what, what do you feel mm-hmm. about that argument? Yeah, I think so too. I, I guess it, 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 it forces or it challenges a person to, again, like to pick between between the options that are on the table. And again, it's not like I'm not surprised. Uh, when a people, when a person says, well, he's not Lord, you know, when a person resists, you know, the, the 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 position that that Christ is Lord, you know, obviously if they if they weren't weren't resisting that, they would become Christians. Um, but it's again, I mean, it's it's pushing a person, it's about pushing a person forward or helping a person making one step after the other in coming closer to Christ. And a lot of these steps are simply about, you know, breaking down the, well, breaking down the strongholds that, that people have put up in their minds against the knowledge of Christ, or just, again, just the stronghold of naturalism. It's just, you know, step by step or, or like with, uh, like hit constantly hitting, or, or chipping away on the naturalist story. And I think things like the the trilemma, uh, Liar Lunatic Lord Trilemma that, that Lewis suggested does that work of, of chipping away or of, of, of putting the like a question mark behind the naturalist story. Mm-hmm.
0: Fantastic. Well, this has been a, a lot of fun. I hope we can keep collaborating in the years ahead and in uh, yeah. commending uh belief in god and uh christ and so forth um so what do you have working in the pipeline? any what's your next video or anything anything you're working on now you want to share with folks they can be on the lookout for
1: yeah so i mean to be honest i i don't know when when you will put out our interview but i've been like my youtube channel has been a bit on hold for the last two months or two and a half months actually because again we've just opened this ministry cafe and it's taken up a lot of not just Time, but also space. I found myself not uh, being able to really think through new material. Although I do have, I do have stuff in my pipeline. I'm planning a little comeback on the platform in the new year. Um, I have something on the column uh, again. Why something I hinted at in our conversation here about why the column actually does imply uh, a personal creator. Mm-hmm. Um, And a second one I have come out is about the problem of animal suffering. It's kind of a a follow-up video to my first initial response I did to Cosmic Skeptic, which I mentioned. So in in this next video, I'm taking a more kind of comprehensive or like, no, a bird's eye perspective, that's a better word, a, a bird's eye perspective on what's actually, what the issues are in putting forward animal suffering as a case against god and and what you know what some very basic and very well easy and often overlooked responses are to that problem awesome very
0: cool well we'll be looking forward to those things keep up the great work thanks for the great conversation lucas and for everybody watching thanks for watching make sure to like subscribe the video make sure to subscribe over at, at deflate as well and we'll see you next time